You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch. Hi, hello, and welcome to Go Doc Yourself. I am Erin McCart. And I'm Erin McCart. Welcome back. Uh, we're glad to have you with us this week as we talk about the anthrax attacks. Oh my God, what a ride. Yeah. Yeah. This is on Netflix. It was done in 2022. It's an hour and 34 minutes long, directed by Dan Krause. Now, this is part documentary, part docudrama, all amazing. There's dramatic music throughout. <laughs> There are real actors playing the docudrama reenactments, like the guy who plays Dr. Ivans also plays Agent Coulson in, like, all the Marvel movies. Yeah, I have him as Clark Craig. Yeah, and Perry Gilpin has a very small part in this. She plays, like, a female co-worker. She was Roz on Frasier. Yeah, yeah, I picked that up, too. I was, like, adorable. I know. So all these cats, they're only, like, I think eight actors, but all of them have pretty good credits and I'm like Mm -hmm. well done Mr. Krause well done yeah it was kind of an interesting take on it because a lot of these are taken from emails and transcripts and stuff like Mm -hmm. that so I suppose to make it somewhat palatable to general audience they had to do something other than like and then I walked three steps and then I went down two (laughs) steps and you know like something super boring so they did a good job with it it was very it was a quick hour and 34 so it really was. It was very mm-hmm. well done. Mm-hmm. They don't really hide who they think did it. I'll say that from the very beginning, the mm-hmm. very beginning, you know who they think did it. So, eh. Yeah. Call it foreshadowing if you want to. I don't know. Like I said, it was engaging. I mean, and part of that is because there's a science element to it for mm-hmm. me. Right. And I found that part really interesting. And also it's terrifying, which again, kind of a draw. Right. So there you are. There we are. So we open up with one of the anthrax scientists, Paul Keim. He makes a statement that I really like. So I'm going to read it. He says, the thing that makes anthrax an exquisite biological weapon isn't because it kills at a high frequency. It isn't because it's communicable like COVID. It's because it has a spore. The spore form can exist for decades. You can't get rid of it. And once those spores get inside the body, they germinate and take over and they'll kill the animal. The spores then go back into the soil. So it has to kill in order to survive. That brought to mind the movie, The Girl with All the Gifts. Okay. Well, the book is kind of the same thing. Yeah. Which is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I like when a scientist has some reverence for what they're working with, right? Like he respects it, Mm -hmm. almost admires because he knows how powerful it is. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really important here because if you're working on something for your whole lifetime, there's got to be a little bit of that, right? Right. But you and I having worked in labs with some pretty toxic things, Mm -hmm. I know I have seen it where people become complacent. Oh yeah. Because you work with it all the time. So I don't know that you're allowed to become complacent when working with something like anthrax because you have to be fully suited up a lot of the time. So hopefully that keeps them a little more diligent. 
yeah, I don't think you rise to the level of these folks either doing things half-assed, I feel. Right. <laughs> they're the right. upper echelon of science. Yeah. They're not like a casual scientist. So Mm-mm. I think it's interesting because we start in Boca Raton. So they show a lot of media footage because there was a lot of news coverage of these things. So right. we're looking at the American Media Incorporated building again in Boca Raton. So this is October 4th of 2001. And they're talking that anthrax has been found on the keyboard of 63-year-old Bob Stevens. Mm-hmm. It's likely that Bob got this from inhalation. Initially, they're saying from soil or livestock. Anthrax can be associated with livestock. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily talk a lot about this. But most of the time, just ambient anthrax is found around cows and sheep and stuff. Mm-hmm. I said sheeps because it's more fun. <laughs> Unfortunately, this does kill Bob. And there's some initial, again, they're talking about how did he get it. And well, he's outdoorsy. They don't say he's a hunter because that is wildly inaccurate, I guess. But he's outdoorsy. And this is not a terrorism thing. So they're very specific about that. And if you think about the time frame in which this happened, this is post 9-11. Everybody's mm-hmm. just on red alert all the goddamn time and that is what's ever on everybody's mind so anything weird that's happening this is where we're gonna go is like how serious is this do i need mm-hmm. to be afraid for my own life so right right because mm-hmm. it's three weeks post 9-11 so it's right. really fresh in the mind right so our friend paul mm-hmm. talks about that anthrax is technically a bacteria, and I meant to look it up, the Latin-y bits, but I did not. I didn't either. He's talking about what a death from anthrax is like. He says, it's not pleasant. It's high fever. You feel terrible, and then you just crash and die. As it spreads and, like, germinates throughout your body. Yeah. I just imagine if they cut open the prison for the autopsy, they'd be like it'd just be plants inside. And I know that's like <laughs> not true. That's kind of tales from the crib kind of thing, but still that's what I have in my mind. Right. I mean, this is just pervasive mm-hmm. and such small amount to become infected is really scary. Yeah. So I think Paul did a great job of painting a good picture for us lay people. Yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> We meet Brad Garrett, not the actor, the FBI agent, from 1985 to 2006. And he describes that they didn't quite know what they had. They didn't know how it got there. So they sent some samples to Paul Mm -hmm. because he's the man. Fast forward a couple of days. Now it's October 12th, eight days after the first anthrax exposure. And they find anthrax in the NBC building in New York City there was a letter addressed to Tom Brokaw and it did not make it to Tom Brokaw. Of course, some assistant opened the mail and started to develop health issues. Right. I have her as Casey Chamberlain. Correct. Okay. She's an assistant from 2001 to 2007. Mm -hmm. I liked that she said the letter contained something that reminded her of a cross between brown sugar and sand. Right, because you always think of anthrax as a white powder. I think that's always kind of how it's defined or how they talk about it. So that was an interesting description. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I understood as well. And she said it was really surreal because she's just whisked away in a black car. Right. 
like men in black style. <laughs> yes. And I, I could imagine that would be alarming for just, you know, again, a lay person who's not used to those kinds of actions. Right. She was given an antibiotic and survived. So thankfully they caught it in time. They were able to mm-hmm. give her, I think it's called Cipro. Is that it? I think so. So now they've got more than one attack and they start to think, is this possibly something more? Mm-hmm. October 15th, 2001, Senator Daschle receives a suspicious letter, which is believed to have anthrax. What's interesting is they say now they believe there might be a connection between the three. Now, how prevalent is anthrax that you have to have three cases where you're like, well, maybe they're connected? I mean, it's not at all. Well, I take it on, I took that on face value as like three points makes a line. <laughs> so, you know, the old adage. So that's happening in the heart center office, which I think is part of the capital complex, which I think you mm-hmm. is probably good to know. Because for a while, I just thought it was in the Capitol building. And I'm like, oh, that's that's incorrect. So I had to look it up <laughs> and make sure that I was understanding mm-hmm. where this occurred. I think it's really funny that there's some footage of former President George W. Bush looking confused, as he often did. He's giving <laughs> an update from the White House. There is a ton of media coverage on the fear and deaths of this. So some interesting things are happening. So Cipro supplies are running low. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of demand for gas masks. And I'm like, I mean, okay, sounds great. And then they kind of decide that if these are coming from letters, then the mail is somehow involved. <laughs> and I mean, does that make sense? Like, I'm just trying to follow. So mail's a really good distribution option because you know, it's difficult to contain. It's somewhat anonymous on the outside, right? Right. So they're like, how can we kind of work backwards and reconstruct this? Mm-hmm. Early on, Paul thinks that it's a foreign source of anthrax, right? They're sure, mm-hmm. obviously, that it's terrorist. However, once they start to look at the samples from the attacks, it matches up with the strain called AIMS, which is actually originating only in America and only in a couple of American labs specifically. So that narrows it down quite a bit. And I think it's interesting because his comment was this person was one of us. Like this is a a scientist that did this. So we have patriotic anthrax to work with, which is great, I guess. Yeah. Also, can we put in, we're 10 minutes into the documentary and now we get the credits. Just now. It seems out of the blue, like I'd forgotten they weren't there in the beginning. And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Just weird. It's a good lead in. I think the director here had some, I don't know, he's got good chops because it really drew me in. And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. (laughs) Now we get to meet the actor playing Dr. Bruce Edward Ivins. So Dr. Ivins worked for the Department of Defense. He was a research scientist at U.S. AMRID, which is the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, that does not fit on a business card. No, it's it's that's really going for it. Mm-hmm. But he's one of the world's leading experts on anthrax. I like how they make the disclaimer that everything that's said by the actor were words that were spoken or taken directly from his emails. So... They weren't just made up to fit the narrative. They were actually things that he had said and did. Appreciate that. Mm -hmm. 
We also meet Jeffrey Adamovich. He works in the U.S. AMRID bacteriology division. Mm-hmm. I didn't know bacteriology was a word. That seems like a bit much, but there we go. I mean, it might not be a Merriam-Webster, but here we're using it as such. <laughs> he said Dr. Ivan seemed eccentric, but was an expert, which I'm sure a lot of experts seem eccentric. Mm-hmm. And he was extremely well thought of by his peers. Yeah, he seems like a interesting cat. They really do discuss a lot of his like personality things. Like, he was really chatty in an awkward way, which I'm like, welcome yes. to science. I don't know. There's a, I think it's difficult to, to get somebody who's really going to be a social, like a real charmer and a great scientist. There's so few of us. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> yes, so few of us. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, at, at some point, like, Paul had described Bruce Ivins as, he said, well, he was normal for the scientific world, but for like the regular community, he was kind of weird. And I thought, just stop it. Stop perpetuating the stereotype of scientists are all weird. This person might have been a little bit off. Their descriptions of him make it sound like he might have been on the spectrum a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's f- perfectly fine. A lot of people on the spectrum tend to work at a very high level in whatever occupation they do. So, so it's understandable. But I felt like, yeah, dude, we are not all fucking weird. Stop it. Yeah, I'm just saying that that plays into your narrative because you don't want to be weird. This is a little self-serving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, it is unfortunate. I hope that people understand that people in science are just regular people. We're just all, I mean, everyone's a little bit weird if you really look at them closely. So, Right. We run the spectrum like everyone else, right? We have really fucking weird and we have really boring, dull people and everyone in the middle. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. So we also talked to FBI agent Vince Lisi. Mm -hmm. He was with the Bureau from 89 to 2015. He says that Ivan's could be a suspect, suspect even. A bioterrorism event like this takes access and know-how, so I think everybody of a certain echelon of training and access and expertise, they're all going to fall under the initial light of suspicion, and then the FBI's job is to come in and kind of wheedle down who has the temperament, has the, you know, real access. So they, you know, kind of start with a wide pool and narrow down to uh, real potential suspects. With Mm -hmm. possible motive, I think, is really what's going on here. Right. And he said that they had to rely on the scientific community to help them with the investigation, right? Because you're at a very specific scientific, you know, niche area. Mm -hmm. But then he says, how do we know they weren't being helpful? And I thought, like, cops protecting one of their own? Is that where we're going with this? Because it sounds familiar. (laughs) It's possible. Touche. Indeed. Mm -hmm. So they do show some reenactments, which are pretty spectacular, with Dr. Ivans and FBI interviewers. Mm-hmm. And so there's a review of Dr. Ivans' sample analysis, like some paperwork that he's done. There's highly purified spores and powder. Those are the samples that were taken from the letters and things like that. So he does mm-hmm. an, some kind of analysis, and he's signing off on it. He's, again, sort of impressed by the skill of the person who did this. Which I don't really find that unusual because I'm, I mean, like, you know, as a scientist, I'm like, 
you got skills. That's, that's okay to say. Doesn't mean mm-hmm. I would do the same thing, but I think it's okay to be like, this is a high level player here. So, right. mm-hmm. yeah. We meet Dina Briscoe. She's a postal worker from 1986-2001 at the Brentwood facility in Washington, D.C. And so she realizes once she sees that the letter went to Senator Daschle, that for the letter to get there, it would have had to come through the facility at Brentwood. Mm-hmm. And that's hitting close to home because that's where she works. So these letters are flying through rollers and sorters at like 35 miles an hour. They're just whipping through. Oh, yeah. And getting sorted out. And if they think that a powder, a fine powder like that, isn't going to come out of the seams at some point or another and get into the air, they have to be pretty naive, right? Yeah. Postmaster General Jack Potter. That sounds like such such a fun official title. But anyway. Right. He, of course, has a press conference saying only one letter from among the three and a half million pieces of mail that go through this facility a day was found to have anthrax. So it's a very small chance that anyone was affected or that it got into the facility. He also said it was sealed real, real well. (laughs) Yes. It's an envelope. Just airtight. (laughs) Yeah. Come on now. Yeah. Right. Uh, Thank God he was there. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot of glad handing from that perspective early. However, a lot of the people, boots on the ground folks that had involvement with that post office sort of saw a different side of it. Specifically, Joan Jackson is the sister of a postal worker named Joe Kersin. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Joe, I mean, his wife calls, there's a, a 911 call. His wife says she's found him unresponsive almost, but he is like having extreme trouble breathing. He's very sick. They take him to the hospital. He unfortunately passes away. And they're mm-hmm. able to identify that it was an anthrax infection that did it. And I, I had, mm-hmm. I mean, like, it doesn't tell you necessarily like how many days, but it seems like it progressed awfully quickly and it makes people uncomfortable. So he is one almost immediate victim of this. And the other guy is, I know I wrote it down. Thomas Morris. That's the guy. Mm-hmm. And he actually makes another 911 phone call and he's, short of breath and he feels like he's his chest is constricted and it's again hard to listen to people asking for help from mm-hmm. 911 and they're trying to be like look the people at the top have told me this is not anthrax but I don't feel great about the situation according to how I feel so he right. actually passes away as well so I think that kind of stirs up a lot of stuff for people that work around them because these are folks who never take a sick day they're very mm-hmm. reliable so it seems like something's up despite what they're getting from their, you know, management. Right. And as management is saying, there's nothing to worry about. They also have people come in to test for anthrax in the facility. And these people are in full hazmat gear. So you have people walking around in essentially spacesuits while you're there without even a face mask on. And like, oh, nothing to see, nothing to see, nothing to worry about. Well, if that's the case, why are you dressed like that? Right? Yeah. It really puts a perspective on how they felt about their employees and how expendable they were, right? Yes. It's more important that we keep the mail going than we keep our people alive. And a lot of that comes from Terrell Wuerl, mm-hmm. who was also a postal worker at the same site. And he is definitely one who is critical of the fact that they kept the building running 
while all of this bullshit is going on in the background, because people aren't stupid, but they did certainly treat them as if, you know, we can't possibly cost the taxpayers any extra Mm -hmm. monies to get their mail delivered. So I think that they were hip to it early, despite, again, what they were getting from the folks upstairs, right? So, Right. And they discuss a little bit later how you could see in, in comparison when Senator Daschle got his letter, they closed down that building immediately. Everyone was tested and treated with Cipro, whereas the letter that came to that building from this facility, they left open for, I think, like 10 days, 24 hours a day for like 10 days, and they didn't treat them at all. And then eventually after people, I think, died or started having symptoms, a lot of them had symptoms. They were like, oh, yeah, I guess we should maybe close or, or test or something. Well, and he had a great point. Yeah, too, to say Mm -hmm. this is not just like, these are support folks, like people driving forklifts. These are people in Mm -hmm. trucks that are delivering stuff. This is a a large scale operation. If you think about 1.3 million letters coming through there a day, a day, that's a lot of mail. And so Mm -hmm. there are a lot of exposures here and they could have controlled that if they had just taken the time to shut it down early and just throw some Cipro at people. Right. It was a decision. Yeah an active decision and it was the wrong one. Yep. So, and it costs two people their lives. And even Terrell said that he's still sick. So, I mean, we get to that later, but it's, it, those symptoms don't just go away. Yeah. It's problematic. I'm sure. Again, we see W just on the television. Thank God making us feel safe that they're taking care of business. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he just instills that comfort. Yeah. It's funny to watch stuff now and be like, "Mm, no, I'm not great. So Mm -hmm. they do, they are able to trace the letters, like kind of progress through the system to a mailbox in Princeton, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. They also offer a $1 million reward for any information. I do admire their detective work to try to get as far back as humanly possible. They don't have any direct evidence. They don't have a picture of somebody dropping something off. You know, I mean, it'd -hmm. be very convenient if the perp were a big bird outfit or something, but that's not the (laughs) case here. Not that conspicuous, but they're like, okay, this gives us a geographic place to start. This is kind of interesting. Right. And they have a time frame, right? So they know the letters would have had to be there at a, within a specific time frame to be picked up and delivered by a time. So that is good as well. Mm -hmm. We meet Rachel Lieber. She's an assistant U.S. attorney from 1997 to 2012. And she talks a little bit about the investigation of the letters. So there are letters, actual written letters that come with the anthrax and say things like, I don't know, death to the heathens, hail Allah. I cannot remember what it says. Um, Stupid stuff. Yeah, it's not real coherent. It's just kind of the regular crazy jargon you get in. Like if it had been cut out of like, magazine letters and like pasted in there it would have been about the same (laughs) gist yeah right but they noticed that some of the letters written were bolded like a couple of the a's were bolded or a t was bolded Mm -hmm. and they kind of keep that in mind because they're like well that's different i guess good eye because i would have thought they were just i don't know rewriting over it well this is handwritten And it is weird when you look at it because it does look like they went over the A's and they went over Mm -hmm. the T's, like a little extra. So that's what you mean by bolded. And it is weird because you're like, okay, it's just, it does look odd. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I don't know where I thought much of it as opposed to, you know, because if you're writing something, sometimes you, without thinking, will do that. You know what I mean? So this is why I'm not an investigator. One of the many reasons. Well, I think it's funny because it's just A's and T's. It's not like they threw a P in there every once in a while. Like, it's not a cipher (laughs) that it really, like, jumped off the page to me. Like, I guess I have read enough psychological thrillers that I'm like, ooh. But, yeah, I was just like, (laughs) huh, somebody had some trouble with those A's and T's. So. Mm Mm-hmm. They also realize that there are about 15 labs that produce the AIM strain of anthrax. So that narrows it down, but it's still a lot to work with. And we have some scientists at U.S. AMRED who are working with the powders that were in the letters. They notice that this particular sample of anthrax has a different morphology than some of the others. Mm-hmm. So it's a very unique look compared to other strains of anthrax. Mm -hmm. So it's something unique. Yeah. Something that stands out amongst all the others. That you could visually see. Yeah. Not like with the naked eye as it were, but. (laughs) Right. But it's something they could see, which is nice to have that indicator of, okay, this is exactly what we're looking Mm -hmm. for. What I think is interesting is Jeffrey comes on and he's talking about how knowing that they're looking at the AIM strain and that U.S. Amrit had done a lot of work with the AIM strain, he's worried that some of the scientists would get caught up in this. And he says, quote, even though none of us had anything to do with it. Well, now that's a bold statement. You can really only talk for yourself and say you didn't have anything to do with it. I know you like to trust your coworkers implicitly, but that's a bold statement. Scary, though, because I, I think that that's our, our natural tendency to be like, well, I mean, I know the people that I work with, I they wouldn't do anything like this. You know what I mean? It's sort mm-hmm. of, a, I think of the lady that worked with Ted Bundy. Like, she was like, there's no way, right? Right. So, Anne Rule, is that who I was? Did she work with him or date him? I thought she dated him. I thought she just worked with him. Oh, who knows? Yeah. So, I don't know, but that's that's how they stay so prolific, right? Because no one would suspect them. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I also agree with the fact that you just don't want to think it came from next door. Right, because then you feel somewhat complicit. If if this person that you knew well was doing something and you didn't know and couldn't stop it or whatever, I think I'd feel a little bit guilty. Like, I should have known. I should have seen it. I mean, I think that that happens all the time with any kind of crime where you find out it was somebody that you knew and you're like, I should have seen the signs. I should have, you know, like... Yikes. Mm -hmm. I do think it was smart that, so they understand that there's a difference in the morphology of the stuff that ended up in the envelopes. So they're like, hey, Mm -hmm. everybody just send us samples of all the shit you're working with. We're going to catalog all this. And, you know, I don't know how much they broadcast it. I don't know of a scientist that wouldn't be like, I think they're collecting just... (laughs) to evaluate some of these things to see if they can get some stuff. That seems to be a question later on. And I'm like, I don't know who they thought they were fooling. <laughs> right. Like you just submit your stuff and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Like hmm, mm-hmm. what a weird, uh, what a weird time to be asking. We're just going to store this in a repository. Don't worry about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So people do what they, you know, that's what scientists is like, oh, great. You want to see everything I've got? Here it is. That's what a good scientist would do. They're not mm-hmm. trying to withhold anything. I think it's Jeffrey again that says later, like, look, U.S. Amrid cooperated to the fullest, which was great because they had some tight mm-hmm. documentation. I will say that. But also they had some yep. tight documentation, which was 
problematic because now it's all recorded and all that kind of stuff, which is like, I admire their thoroughness. Mm-hmm. So they kind of do a little bit of testing to see if they can narrow it down. And there's no immediate results that confirm that they can find the material. Right. None of them match this unique morphology. Right. right. I like that they talk to Dr. Ivans quite a bit and he's trying to help them. And he's more than willing to point the finger at co-workers. That's what I wrote down as well. Throwing people under the bus. Especially those doing serial dilutions. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Just because they're diluting it makes them suspect? I, I n- did not follow that logic at all. Well, I think it's a stupid thing to say, but if you're an FBI agent who really doesn't work in this field, maybe that's... It sounds significant. I mean, yes, they are doing serial dilutions. I've done serial dilutions. You've done serial dilutions. Where were you in (laughs) 2001? Okay. Right. (laughs) Right. Also, for the director, we're doing reenactments, which I appreciate. I'm loving them. Uh What I'm not loving is... The actor playing Dr. Ivan's wearing his lab coat in the break room, getting coffee, mm-hmm. watching TV. Mm-hmm. Can we not do that? Also, that is not appropriate pipetting skills. It would take two seconds to show someone how to hold it correctly. Two seconds. That's all I'm saying. While we're on this train, let me say he's sitting in front of the tiniest biosafety cabinet I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. And his carousel of pipettes is way on the outside. Of this biosafety cabinet, he's reaching out of the hood to grab his pipette, pipetting some stuff, and then putting it back. And I'm like, again, nope. Just consult any scientist, any scientist. I'd be like, just that's one. contamination city, okay? Especially if you're working in highly contagious stuff. Like, that's not real. So if that had been a movie, I would have just started off. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Multiple times. They show this and multiple times they show him with a lab coat on getting coffee or putting it on and then sitting at his desk in an office where he would probably eat or whatever. And I, I don't think they understand the general population that lab coats for scientists are different than doctor's coats. Doctor's coats are just a symbol of authority, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Our lab coats are for safety to keep stuff off of us. So you don't want that anywhere outside of the lab. No. Ew, ew, ew. So I still liked it beyond that somewhat major criticism. But nonetheless, if you're doing reenactments, call me. I can be bought for surprisingly cheap. Yeah. Right? Cup of coffee. That's all it takes. Maybe maybe a chocolate croissant. I'm just saying. Okay. True. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They do talk about one of the things that Dr. Ivans was working on was actually a new vaccine. Mm -hmm. So there is a vaccine for anthrax that they've been using for a while, but apparently it had some side effects like forming big knots in your arm. And they don't explain whether those knots go away, if it's just a temporary after injection, or now you live with a big knot in your arm. Great fruit size. I picked up on that. And I was like, that seems significant. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm all about updating things that can be updated and it makes sense. So I I love that. Right. Yeah. So we come to June 8th, 2002. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a new breath in the investigation several months after the attacks. They're focusing on a guy named Dr. Stephen Hatfield. Mm -hmm. He was fired. He's evidently mad at the world. 
I think he kind of spouted off about a few things and that landed him in all kinds of hot water. Yes. Because again, he's one of these that is in the suspect pool. He had access to some of these things. He had the knowledge to do some of this stuff and he got fired, which pissed him off. Right. So I understand maybe an extra look at this guy. I don't have a problem with that part of it. Mm-hmm. I do think that they kind of stepped on their dick a little bit here because they just came after him with guns blazing and very little evidence. Yes. And it wasn't just the FBI that came after him. They were very vocal to the media yes. about him being a potential suspect or a person, person of, of interest, interest, I think. is yeah. what. And all that means to the media is this person did it. So they And they didn't deny that they thought he did it. And so the media just bombarded him. And it was... Like, he couldn't even live his life anymore. Right. And they do talk to his attorney at the time, um, a guy named Tom Connolly, who I thought represented himself really well in this. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about, there was non-subtle surveillance of this guy, and mm-hmm. they really did the best that they could to pressure him into fucking something up. But again... There's no real evidence of any of this. They did multiple searches of his joint. They did multiple interviews for him. Nothing Mm -hmm. broke here. And they just kept hammering him and hammering him. And like no real things happened. So despite all the pressure, he still denies that he wasn't a part of this. And well, he denies he was a part of this. Let me make that Mm -hmm. grammatical correction. But they never arrest him. They don't really have enough to do anything. So they were hoping they'd just spook him into confessing or like, Mm -hmm. you know, spilling all his paperwork while walking down the street one day. I don't know what they really thought was going to happen here, but it didn't work. Right. And his life is destroyed. Right. And they they discussed that they followed him so close. They literally ran over his foot one time. (laughs) In the car? Yes. Oh, my God. And they brought dogs in. And they just let him loose into his house, which, of course, they ran up to him and alerted on him. And Tom was like, yeah, he they did. But they also alerted on, like, 10 other scientists that they forget to mention. So, you yeah. know, let's yeah. calm down a little bit. And I can imagine that the FBI was under a ton of pressure and scrutiny to finish this. Of course, mm-hmm. this is months after the initial attacks. And we have talked about this many times in a lot of the documentaries we've talked about is, Pressure makes people focus on things because they're like, surely this is it. It couldn't be anything else. I mean, like, and I understand that bit of humanity here, but this is really a case mm-hmm. of what not to do. Right. They they try to make the pieces fit into a puzzle yes. that it wasn't meant to fit yes. into. Our friend Rachel said, when you have someone you think did these terrible acts, you're going to want to look at every part of his life. Uh, yes, I agree with that. However, the fact that they essentially unleash the media and the rest of the country on this person is unacceptable. That's not okay. I do love the fact though, that you know that they were like, oh my God, this guy's like a brony or whatever. Like you're looking at all aspects of their lives. You're going to find stuff that like is (laughs) funny. I mean, right. Yeah. Right. Yes. He definitely goes to brony conventions. Right. I'm sorry. Please don't sue us. We're just just playing. So that's kind of the last bit that's close to to the actual events, right? So mm-hmm. the investigation stalls. They kind of flip through some different things in the documentary. They land on 2006 when what I wrote down was they kind of specify that there have been 
9,100 interviews, there have been 6,000 subpoenas, and there have been 67 searches executed to try to bring this to closure. Yep. But they don't have anything significant enough to make an arrest for this. And that's in the five years since it happened. Mm-hmm. This is when Vince Lisi takes over the investigation. So they want new eyes on it. They assign him to it. And they also have new science, right? Mm-hmm. So now we have genome sequencing, which we didn't necessarily have the technology before. And so they go ahead and sequence all of the samples that were submitted by the scientists mm-hmm. so they can get DNA fingerprints to try to identify the parent. They trace the samples that were sent back to a specific flask. I love how it's just a flask. This lives in a flask. Anyway, how long is it in the flask? Is it dirty? Is it moldy? It's just anyway. Well, I, I think, I mean, again, I think kudos to USAM Red for the record keeping that they did. So, I mean, anytime you're doing bacterial work, you're growing stuff in these flasks and then you split them and then, you know, kind of do stuff from there. So this was a common ancestor of some of this shit at one point is how I understood it. Yeah. I'm glad I don't, I don't grow anything. <laughs> I, I don't. So I don't know how that works. So I appreciate that explanation. Yeah. This is some cell culture. I mean, technique as far as what I'm concerned. And then they mm-hmm. kind of talk a little bit about some shenanigans that happened with it later, but yeah. Yep. So this all traces back to a flask containing RMR 1029. Mm-hmm. That's the mother spore, if you yes. will. And it happens to be a flask of spores that Bruce Ivins created for his experiments. However, many other people also used the RMR 1029. Right. So it wasn't just him. He made it, distributed out to others who used it. And that's fairly common in labs, right? Like we often use mm-hmm. the same resources for experimentation. So it's not, mm-hmm. they're not completely isolated. And I am not at all surprised that there was a flask of this stuff used by more than one scientist in their testing. Right. Totally legit, in my opinion. Yeah. Yes. So they go through and figure out who all used the RMR 1029. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of go through and and try to get alibis for them. Yes. Who had access to it during the time of the mailings, who would have been able to drive to Princeton Mm -hmm. to deliver it, because some Mm -hmm. people would not be able to, and they have record of it. Right. And so, you know, they can narrow it down a little bit. And the more they investigate, the more they like Bruce as a suspect. Yeah. I think that it's interesting that, I mean, kind of how they go about different things. So they're using all of the records of lab entry times, lab exit times. They find that Dr. Ivans is spending quite a bit of time in what they call the hot suite, which I've never worked in, but that's what you're talking about when you have to be like all kinds of PPE'd up, like head to toe. Mm -hmm. We're talking ventilation. We're talking very severe PPE. I don't know what the best way to say that is, but... Mm -hmm. This is evidently key card activated. So he's in there at all kinds of weird hours, nights, weekends, mm-hmm. all kinds of weird shit. And that's atypical even for him. He seems to be quite a character, but he kept more routine hours. And then leading up to the first mailing, he was in the lab at just weird ass times. And then he took a break, mm-hmm. like for a week or so. 
And then before the second mailings, they see this ramp up again of just these odd times. Like this is time when nobody else is in the lab and you might be able to mm-hmm. get away with some more shit. So, I mean, when you're in a lab, you kind of are aware of what other people are doing because we hold each other to a certain set of standards, right? So if you see somebody doing something stupid, you're going to be like, what's up with that? I mean, like, that's not uncommon to be like, hey, put your glasses on or hey, don't do that with that reagent. Don't pour that back into the flask or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people do when you work in a lab. So not only are you working on your own shit, but you're aware of what other people are working on and you can kind of pick out odd behavior. Absolutely. Yes. So they went back, the FBI went back to look at kind of all the conversations they had with him because they talked to him a lot under the guise of him helping them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now they're trying to determine was he actually helping him? Was he deflecting? Was he trying to identify people who would take the spotlight off of him and things of that nature? Did he try to send them in a different direction? And that's kind of what they're trying to determine. As they dig more into it, they find more and more things that make him look suspicious, right? So he had mental health issues. I mean, who doesn't? Right. right? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) right. Um, he would leave at night and come home the next day without his wife knowing. My comment here was, if he's so weird, as you guys keep saying, how did he get a wife? Good for him? Must not have been quite that weird. I don't know. I don't know. We never actually talked to his wife, but she does, you know, I mean, there she's somewhat involved later. Let me also say Mm -hmm. about this involving himself in the investigation. That is a thing that they have identified, at least in my true crime life, that people do this because they're interested. They want to know how close you are to their whatever. I mean, Mm -hmm. so it is not unheard of for somebody to involve themselves in an investigation, either to point in the opposite direction or just enjoy the fact that they're being pursued or whatever it is. But that Mm -hmm. is something that is known that perpetrators do. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He also maintained different P.O. boxes under different names. I find that one kind of weird. Right. To what a purpose? I mean, they never discussed that, right. but I'm just like, I mean, if you want that secret decoder ring real, real bad, I guess. <laughs> that Ovaltine. Exactly. So they searched his house and they kind of confront him as they're executing the warrant there. Mm-hmm. They're confronting him outside of work as they're searching his house. So the comments they make are, he seemed agitated. He seemed, you know, worried. And my thoughts were one who wouldn't be, you're searching my house. Right. Two, if he's on the spectrum, these things might be overwhelming and overstimulating and it can cause someone to really kind of react in a way that you're not used to. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that certainly plays into this, but I, would be a wreck if somebody searched my house. Yes. That's just feels weird. So I don't know. I was just like shocking that he wouldn't be like, whatever you guys need. Okay. We're going to Burger King. Help See yourself. you later. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So anytime cops and FBI agents make these comments, like, well, he behaved in, in a, in a rational way. How irrational is it really? You know what I mean? Right. Let's stop and think about most people and how they're going to react. Yeah, I don't love that. 
No. They did not find anything that directly linked him to the poisoning. They keep saying things like some thought he would have kept a souvenir. What what kind of souvenir? Like a finger, an ear? <laughs> I don't understand what kind of souvenir he would have kept for this kind of crime. I think they just want... If you do a crime, they want you to keep a scrapbook full of all the news clippings. Like, that seems to be the classic souvenir, right? Like, besides a finger or an ear, which is a great, Mm. you know, kind of a great take on that. But, you know, yeah, I guess he didn't make it easy for you. I don't know what else to say. He didn't write in his diary. Dear diary. Today, I killed some people. (laughs) Today, my plan fell into place. Yeah, they do mention that somebody had the good idea to check his trash can so their thought is that they've spooked him with a search mm-hmm. now what happens right so there's this very funny probably my, my favorite part of the reenactments where he comes out this is again famous actor clark craig comes out of mm-hmm. his house in his bathrobe he's like looking all over the street it's at night and he's just <laughs> warily like traipsing out to the trash can to drop something in it so then they cut away and you don't know if they found anything or not you're like what happened what happened well Mm -hmm. we just don't know so no we don't and how thorough did they search his house if they think okay we searched his house we found nothing surely whatever we're looking for he'll throw away what why didn't you find this in the search if it's in his house and coming out of his house into the trash can how good are you at your job if that's the case I mean, I don't know. Maybe I had a secret passage. <laughs> Maybe he had loose floorboards. We don't know. They didn't explore this oh, part of it. You know what I mean? Could have been in his work badge. You don't know. <laughs> okay. He's a scientist. He's got hidey holes everywhere. I will say scientists tend to be really good hoarders of stuff in the lab. Like one oh, time we ran out God, of yes. ty- uh, pipette tips. And so now I will keep all of the types of pipette tips in a secret stash. So maybe if they, maybe they did consult one scientist. So <laughs> that's true. Even mm-hmm. if we no longer have any of those pipettes in house, we will always keep the tips. <laughs> what You're if, right. what we'll if we can't on. get them later? Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to do in the lab is to clean out the lab and watch other people freak out when you throw <laughs> stuff away. Love it. I used that 10 years ago. <laughs> I might need it again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So now we're at, we're May 2008. We're five years, nine months, and some days away from the first anthrax attack. Mm-hmm. Paul is at like a conference mm-hmm. somewhere. I, I don't know. But he is actually approached by the FBI at this conference mm-hmm. and they want to talk to him. And apparently there's like a whole slew of them. It's not like one or two people. It's like a panel of people <laughs> to talk to him. I love it. And they're like, don't worry, we're not arresting you. And he's like, um, I didn't think that was a problem until just now, thanks. Right, right. <laughs> but they're looking into the emails Paul and Bruce sent back and forth because they're trying to figure out if anything Paul said might have tipped Bruce off into what kind of testing they were doing on the anthrax samples. I don't think they're blaming Paul per se. They're just trying to figure out what Bruce knew about the testing. And again, I say to you, context clues enough would have been all he needed to put together to be like oh there's something going on with anthrax now they want to look at all my anthrax it's kind of obs yeah yeah it seems that way doesn't it it really does i do really enjoy that at this point 
Evidently, Bruce is the most prolific author ever. He has written a ton, whether in emails or whatever. <laughs> He's kind of glommed on to a couple of his female co-workers and just emailed them mm-hmm. a bunch of nonsense. As far as I can tell, like the kind of stuff that you're like, it like a, it's, it's like a very large drunk text to your ex. Like, oh, just I have yeah. the feels for you and things have gone awry and I don't know. But on one case, he calls her his secret sharer. And I'm like, yeah, ew. But he's forcing shit on her. And I think she's just like, okay, I hope you feel better. Like, she's not a participant in this. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God. No. It's HR worthy. Oh, it's absolutely. Uncomfortable. Yes. Mm-hmm. There are many coworkers who defend Bruce. I like how the FBI say, oh, when they talk about specific behaviors, they all kind of come back like, well, it's just Bruce being Bruce. And they're like, hmm. And I'm like, well, that could be how Bruce has acted his entire life. But sure, let's let's disregard that. Okay, yeah. There were the emails to the his coworkers um, often talking about where he becomes angry and paranoid and he can kind of see himself behaving in a way without feeling like he's a participant in the way he's behaving. It's very weird, kind of a dissociation. Yeah. Like a fugue state, right? Like he's like, I'm just mm-hmm. a passenger or whatever. And I'm like, is somebody even watching some Dexter? <laughs> eh? <laughs> there you go. Right. Was, was Dexter out yet? I don't think so. I don't think so don't either, know. but maybe it was based on him. I don't know. That's probably a reach. Mm. Can we talk about the fact that he had obsession with a sorority? Yeah, an admitted obsession as well, yes. And let's talk about, it's the KKG sorority, which I am not familiar. He once asked a girl out, and she said no. And then he broke into the sorority house, stole a some kind of code so he could break all the, I don't know, it was a cipher. So he understood all of their, like, rituals for the sorority, and I was like, cool, okay. Yeah. But like one rejection from a girl 40 years ago or whatever sent him on this trajectory Mm -hmm. where he was impersonating young women online Mm -hmm. just seems like a lot. Still at like 60 years old, he was still catfishing people essentially. Evidently. Yeah. Very unfortunate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the women that he emailed the secret sharer, if you will, decided to help the FBI. So at first she was very defensive and saying like, no, Bruce is fine. He's fine. Until they told her that Bruce actually had her password and would go into her emails and read them. And then she's like, oh yeah, that's not good. So she decides to wear a wire and go meet with Bruce in June of 2008. He talks a lot about periods of time. He doesn't remember. He wakes up and sees like signs of what he calls crazy Bruce, what he did, like different things around the house to indicate what he might've done, but he doesn't recall doing them. That's never a good sign. No. She point blank asked him, did you have part in this, the attacks? Mm-hmm. And he says, not that I can recall, which is not a no. <laughs> right. Right. But I, I think to a certain extent, he feels like if he can't remember doing it, then he's not guilty of it to the right to the extent of I would not do this as I sit here now. Mm-hmm. 
understanding that as crazy Bruce, right, he might be doing these things and just not know it. Right. And then he says the line for the second time that I almost turned this fucking thing off. And he like <laughs> strokes her cheek lovingly and he says, you used to be so beautiful. And I don't know why she didn't just punch him right in the dick right at that time. I'm like, nope, no. Mm-mm. Why didn't she say, you used to be sane, and here we are. <laughs> I know, she's right? probably like, I don't want to I don't want to uh, trigger him too much. Right, he might keep anthrax in his pocket like fucking glitter or something and just throw it at people, I don't know. <laughs> I love that she suggests therapy. She's like, look, maybe, hypno- <laughs> maybe get hypnotized if you don't remember what the fuck you're doing all the time. And he's like, couldn't right. possibly, couldn't possibly. I don't want to remember. Mm-hmm. Okay, dude. Okay, that's convenient. Yep. So June of 2008, Bruce goes to the FBI willingly for an interview. He goes with his lawyer. They started with his preoccupation with women. And he actually says it's not a preoccupation. It's an obsession. Mm -hmm. Appreciate the honesty. Yeah. Then they start showing him what they found in his trash that they did not find in his house, which I find weird. But what did they find in his trash, Aaron? It's a book on codes and code breaking. And I did not write it down because it's like some stupid Latin name that I don't understand. So I did not Mm -hmm. put that in there. But having asked him about breaking into the sorority house and stealing their book of codes, Mm -hmm. he's like, I'm not really into codes. And they're like, oh, really? And then Perry Mason (laughs) moment, they drop this code book on the desk. And it is very dog-eared and whatever in the reenactment. Like, it is a well-loved book. Mm -hmm. And so... And he's like, oh, you guys got me. He didn't say that. But I think it is an interesting (laughs) moment where they showed that the preparation for this interview was extensive. So they've talked to psychologists. They have really lined this up to push buttons for Bruce, right? So Mm -hmm. they don't come out and ask him for the information. They're going around to try to stir him up. So, right. And the book wasn't just on codes, but it was on codes using DNA. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting to me. And so go back, way back, listener, to when I talked about that a couple of the letters, the A's and the T's, in the written letters that came with the anthrax were bolded. Right. And apparently, if you somehow use this book to unravel it it translates to fny which they decide is fuck new york because bruce has openly admitted to hating new york i don't think that's an uncommon statement that people hate new york so i don't know why this is a big revelation but that's what they get i just think it's funny that they take two letters to translate into three letters like that's not a great cipher, y'all. Like, that's not like Dan Brown worthy, in my opinion. So it is the county fair psychic reaching and grasping for something <laughs> to connect is what it is, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. So this is one big reveal, right? That they found this book in his trash. Mm-hmm. They have gleaned from it that possibly he has written these letters and used some kind of code to do some, 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 some. but again, I don't think it's proof. I think mm-hmm. it's circumstantial at best. They do talk mm-hmm. a little bit about at this point, 
they kind of call him on his submissions to the repository um, when he was working with Dr. Keim. So now with the DNA markers, they are talking to him about like, we know that kind of the mother of all of this stuff that was mailed was one of your flasks. And he comes right back with, yeah, but there's more than one person that's got access to that. And I'm like, yes, yes. And they're like, well, they've all been Mm -hmm. um, eliminated as suspects. And he's like, okay, cool. They're circling here, but they haven't really nailed him down. Well, what they say is, why did you submit two different samples? So the first sample he submitted to the repository was actually rejected because he didn't follow protocol. Yes. Like wrong test tube or something. Who knows? Mm -hmm. And so they request that he send a second sample in to which he does. Now, Paul states that that first sample that was sent in, they didn't tell him to throw it away. So he just stored it. He was like, whatever. And just kind of chucked it in the freezer or wherever you put it. And I love that. Yeah. And tested the second one. Mm-hmm. But then they come back and realize they still have the first one and they test the first one. Right. And the first one matches the samples. Yeah. Well, it's indicative that that flask begat the stuff that was in the mail, right? Yeah. So, number one, they're accusing him of switching samples, right? So, he sent the original sample in the wrong tube, but it was the right sample. The second time, he mm-hmm. sends the right tube, but it's a fake sample. It may not have come from the original flask because those two do not match up, even though they're labeled the same. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And their theory is he realized by the second sample what they were doing with the samples. And so he labeled it RMR 1029, but Mm -hmm. didn't mail in RMR 1029. Right. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then Jeffrey kind of comes back at this point and he's talking about Bruce isn't himself. He's not funny and cracking jokes anymore. And I, I mean, you know, the jokes here were spectacular. They were dad jokes of the highest degree. Jokes that two people in the country get. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Love it. He's drinking more. He's sleeping less, which I'm like, look, the sleeping less, that's a form of torture for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Terrible. Ask any new parent. So our friend Paul discusses that Bruce's therapist, I don't know exactly what if this was a a doctor or just like a counselor, regardless, there's a restraining order against Bruce from this person for unsaid issues. Mm -hmm. If Bruce is an obsession person, I can kind of guess, but who knows? Mm -hmm. And then we get into reenactment city and there's a lot of postulation from Bruce about, he feels targeted by the FBI He's some kind of blood sacrifice. They have made basically a mountain out of a molehill on the evidence that they have against him. Mm -hmm. And again, I say to you, he is a prolific writer. He produces some, a lot of strong imagery in this. Like it really paints a lovely picture or a sad picture is probably a better way to describe it. But he is really like putting it out there, his feelings. So you don't, Mm -hmm. you're not unaware of how he feels about all this. So Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And when he talks about the fact that they take the most mundane detail and turn it into something horrible, I we've seen that happen in a lot of, I mean, think about Garrett Phillips when old boy had a scab on his ankle and they're like, well, that must be where you jump from a two-story building. You know, <laughs> that's, that's a leap of logic. Yeah. So we've seen it happen a lot and, and it's possible it's true. Mm-hmm. So then we hear... 
the actual 911 call from Diane Ivins. That is Bruce's wife. She finds Bruce on the floor of the bathroom, still alive, but not conscious. She sounds incredibly calm. I wrote the same thing down. Like if I was an investigator and I wanted to give an example of a really odd phone call to 911, this would be it. However, as a wife, would I and I'm trying to get the information conveyed, I can imagine like I'm trying to like center myself to get that shit out before I lose my, you know, lose it all over the place. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she's like, it sounds like she's ordering dinner. Yeah. It is so just calm. And he even asked, or she, I can't remember Mm -hmm. who the 911 operator was, but they're like, do you want us to stay on the phone with you until they get there? She's like, nah, I'm fine. I'm like, Okay. You sound all right. That's true. Now, I will say, I wonder if she, like, took a clonopin or something and she was just mellow as hell because I think he probably would have been a handful to deal with at this time or always. True. It is also possible if you think of the fact that he might have been on the spectrum, she might have also been on the spectrum. And so they show emotion differently. So it might not have come out that way. And I try to remember that. He does die of an apparent overdose. Mm -hmm. Now they show a whole lot of news clips that call him essentially everything but white. Yeah. I mean, it's, he's a sociopath, he's deranged, he's everything. Mm-hmm. It's really not good. Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions here, and they don't really take into context what he was dealing with. So on August 6th of 2008, the Department of Justice announces that Ivan's was the sole perpetrator they share some of their conclusions mm-hmm. and that's it. They are 100% certain that Bruce did it. Mm-hmm. And my comment to that was you are also 100% certain that Dr. Hatfield did it as well. So right. I don't really feel that confident in your findings. So our friend Vince, the FBI agent, talks a little bit about why he's 100% sure Bruce did it. And he said Bruce was really concerned about the anthrax work longevity because this was his life's work and his vaccine was kind of, I don't know, but he was worried that that was going to go away. So after the anthrax scare, he actually received a very prestigious award, one of the, I think the highest that can be awarded to a civilian. So as far as like work cred goes, that sounds great, but it just Well, the FDA, like, fast-tracked the approval for his vaccine and things like that. Yes. It's a very long kiss goodnight plot, (laughs) right? We're going to blow up the building so we can get funding for for anti-terrorism shit, Mm -hmm. right? It seems extreme. So Vince does admit that this is all circumstantial evidence. And he said, you really have to Mm -hmm. take everything together. Like, so he's thinking... I mean, he doesn't say this, but earlier he said about the weird long hours in the hot suite and maybe this part too. And the fact that he really wasn't a stranger to concealing his identity in various ways. So he Mm -hmm. had the knowledge and he had the access to the flask that he originally created. So again, I, I understand where they're coming from to line all this up beautifully to knock it down but the problem is they never knock it down there's no direct correlation for um, bruce ivins and these attacks yeah there's no actual tangible evidence and 
the fact that he died means they don't have to prove it. They can say whatever they want because they don't have to take it to trial or to court or whatever. They're like, yep, that's what happened. And they can close the case. Right. The scientists were not so sure that he did it. Yeah. A lot of them understand that it's possible. But then again, you know, there was no smoking gun. There's there's no way to prove that he definitively did it. Right. And they also call out, at least Paul does, the Hatville investigation because they're like, look, they thought they had this guy nailed down before and there really wasn't any restitution on that either. And then Jeffrey kind of talks about, or both of them possibly kind of talk about the immense pressure that they put on him. And that is probably what caused him to kill himself. Like it doesn't, the guilt, it wasn't the guilt. It was the fact that he was being hounded and his reputation would be ruined and all of that kind of stuff. So they're like, I just don't, I just don't buy it. Right. To which our friend Rachel says, oh, it makes me feel so bad to hear that it was us that drove Bruce to commit suicide. But we did everything we could to keep him safe while also pursuing him aggressively because we we had to. We were convinced that he had done it. Exactly. Fuck off. (laughs) Right. So to them, the ends justify the means. They just never got the means. It was just all the ends. Right. Right. I mean, it just it. Her statement, I, they just should never have put that in there. That makes To me, that makes her look so bad. Oh, it makes me so, so bad to hear because we were totally trying to keep him safe. Were you, though? Well, I think you, you also... You didn't give a shit. Yeah, I think you also have to discuss at this point that this was an incredibly expensive investigation and they were held to... They, people wanted to know who did this. So, again, I think here we mm-hmm. are coming again a conflict of interest that they were being pressured. They're looking around. I mean, if Hatville didn't do it, who they liked before... Who's our next Mm -hmm. likely candidate? And so, again, I do think that they had some reason to be suspicious suspicious of Ivan's, but they didn't prove their case. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I don't think they did either. So, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Mm -hmm. I like that Dina, our postal worker, she went to a press conference they were holding. And she asked the postmaster general i believe mm-hmm. or the postal inspector i can't remember which one she asked them about what are you going to say to the employees what what are you going to do for the employees and he's like oh we sent out a letter oh okay a letter thanks maybe we'll have, we a, pizza also have a pizza party exactly 100 <laughs> percent. yeah <laughs> all better that's all better her face when he gave that response was not pleased by that. She was, her face was like, oh, bitch. Right. No. Brentwood was renamed after the two gentlemen that died from the anthrax exposure there. Terrell talks about how he still has health problems and his lungs look like he's been like a lifetime smoker and he's never smoked in his life. Right. And he cites the kind of tried and true, well, five people died and 17 people were injured or whatever. But he said, I know a ton of people that are sick from this. And it's like, mm-hmm. why perpetuate this? I mean, like, what good does it do? Yeah. Post office wasn't responsible. It would be a real win, in my opinion, in the public, you know, interest world and the public relations world to take care of your employees. Like, what good press you've missed by fucking around and not taking care of your people. Like, how is this not a workers' comp thing? It's amazing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I wonder what caused that. If it would have been any post office, they would have done the same thing. Or if it was because that post office appeared to be predominantly black. I saw that too. Yeah. And I don't know which one would have prompted them to behave this way or if it was both or what. But either way, it's unacceptable. 
Yeah, 100%. So now we get to the closing credits. They explain the Brentwood employees filed a class action lawsuit against the Postal Service. They alleged the top officials knew the anthrax was in their building. The case was dismissed. Of course it was. Right. They have a ton of testimony, or at least they're showing clips of testimony, video testimony Mm -hmm. of workers talking Mm -hmm. about like, I was ill. I didn't feel well. Um, Here are some long-term and short-term things that I dealt with. And to just dismiss that Mm -hmm. is pretty spectacular. Now, there was also some investigative journaling or whatever you want to call it, because people were going outside the fences and stuff and videoing that there were uh, biohaz labels and stuff on the building while the decontamination Mm -hmm. or whatever was going on. So it's like... That's a really hard sell, in my opinion, to say that there were no, there was no evidence. I mean, just the dismissal seems kind of faulty. Yeah. And let's mention that every person that they showed on those videos, they were all black. Yep. 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 Dr. Hatfield sued the U.S. government for infringement of privacy because they never proved any Mm -hmm. connection between him and the attacks and he was never charged. He, a white man, received $5.8 million in the settlement. Yeah. And he wasn't sick. Yeah. It doesn't mean that he didn't deserve it, but also the people that were affected by this deserved more. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I feel like he was obviously wronged. They really fucked that up. I think they did too. But yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a real, it's a real commentary on social injustice. Mm -hmm. Just another one. Yeah. Of the many. Experts from the National Academy of Science determined it's not possible to reach a definitive conclusion about the origins of the anthrax. The FBI contends that rarely does science alone solve an investigation. I would say sometimes science actually disputes your findings. Just saying. (laughs) Stupid science not being convenient. I know. I hate that. I know. Absolutely. So this was a really good documentary. I wish there had been a more definitive conclusion and that's sort of what I've got. I was really engaged. Like I said, the science piece I found really interesting. I remember when this Mm -hmm. was happening, I don't remember Mm -hmm. it being as prolonged. So I don't remember the reporting about Hatfield. I don't remember the reporting about Ivan's or any of that kind of stuff. And I was an adult at the time, but I do remember the scare. I remember how freaked Mm -hmm. out everybody was. There are remnants of this still going on because at our joint, we have an anthrax training that people do mm-hmm. when they start. You know, what to do if you have an envelope um, that's got white powder in it. So right. I think that's interesting, you know, thinking about that 20 odd years mm-hmm. later. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I love the combination of the documentary with the docudrama. Yeah. I think they did a really good job. Yeah. I'm not sure how I feel that Dr. Ivans was portrayed, but it is what it is. I don't know him from Adam. So, sure. you know, but they, they did a fairly good job of not completely making sure you thought that he was absolutely the one who did it. Right. I definitely think they led you down the road, but at the end, I thought that they did a good job of saying this was what was portrayed to everybody. However, people close mm-hmm. to the situation are not convinced. And so, right. You know, I don't know. Right. Well, I was glad we watched it. Yeah. I was really surprised by how well done it was and how much I enjoyed it. Yeah. So there's that. (laughs) 
it is a good mystery one, right? Like you, you don't know mm-hmm. the story. At least I didn't is unfolding and agree. I, I agree that it was, it was really well done. Yep. Okay. Okay. So next week we're going to do one for Halloween. What are we doing next week? So getting back to our roots, we're going to do a little bit of a <laughs> crypto uh, situation, right? So we're going to do creature feature, right? The Mothman of Point Pleasant. You can find this gem on Amazon Prime. Released in 2017. It's about an hour and seven minutes long. And this is the story of the Mothman and the accident that happened on the bridge in Point Pleasant in the 60s, mm-hmm. in the 70s. I mean, it's been a minute ago. Right. Right. It's been a while. If you've seen the show The Mothman Prophecies, the movie with Richard Gere and Deborah Messing, mm-hmm. that kind of focuses on this. And don't you think that I won't mention it in here because I love that movie. So it's a really good movie. Yeah. I can't remember the last time I've seen it, so I might have to rewatch it. I know. It. I think I'm going to do that this week. I'm so excited. Okay. <laughs> we should also mention that this is done by the same person that did the Bray Road Beast, so <laughs> no guarantees on how good this documentary is, but we'll see. I think the reenactments are going to be starkly different from the one we just did. <laughs> right. Very much. Right. I cannot wait. I know. I'm super pumped. So anyway... Please join us on this grand adventure. (laughs) Beyond that, we'll ask you to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at GoDocYourself, where we post um, new episodes and a little blurb. Sometimes we get some uh, comments and things like that, which I always appreciate. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, please, uh, please join us. Yep. So, until next week, guys. Later. Bye. Bye.